Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I'm the senior editor of the e-journal Global Symmetry. It was a great pleasure to welcome two close colleagues, Colin Bradford and Eve Tabergen, into the virtual studio to discuss the rising tensions in the U.S.-China relations and the consequences for the liberal order. We began this discussion with part one of episode 31, with Colin and Eve discussing their initiation of a China-West Dialogue, or CWD. This effort has brought together experts and former officials from around the globe, seeking pathways to ameliorate China-U.S. relations and suggesting a policy of strategic engagement uh, as opposed to strategic competition are what some of our democratic colleagues have described as competition without catastrophe. Colin, along with Eve and myself, initiated the China-West Dialogue, holding a virtual uh, workshop in March at Boston University's GDP Center and at the Global Solutions Summit in Berlin uh, in May and June. Research from both uh, events can be found at the Boston University site, uh, the GDP site, and here at uh, the Global Solutions uh, uh, Summit site as well. All the research notes from experts at the BU virtual workshop can be found at the Global Summitry Project website at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto. Quick note on both my colleagues. Colin is a non-resident fellow at the Global Economy and Development Program at the Brookings Institution in Washington. Colin is a specialist on global governance and the G20. He has edited a number of books on the subject. Colin has convened annual events with Brookings to encourage longer-term strategic thinking uh, for the future. Eve is a professor of political science, uh, faculty associate in the School of Public Policy and Global Affairs, and director emeritus of the Institute of Asian Research, all at the University of British Columbia. He has published many articles and book chapters on Japan and China's political economy, on global governance, global climate change politics, and on the governance of agricultural biotechnology. Eve founded, in fact, the Vision 20 Group in 2015, which is a new coalition of global scholars and policymakers aimed at providing a long-term perspective on the challenges of global economic and environmental governance. So it's with a great pleasure that I invite both of these colleagues into the studio for this discussion. Uh, So I wanted to start out with the obvious, I guess. Uh, Both of you are co-chairs of the China-West Dialogue, the CWD as we call it. Uh, Now to be fully transparent, I'm also a co-chair. But maybe uh, starting with you, Colin, uh, what is this uh, uh, China-West Dialogue and why did you initiate this project? And then I'll ask Eve uh, for his views as well. Uh, Thanks, Alan. Well, as you know, the, the, the China-West Dialogue is, is basically a network of Europeans 
Canadians, Chinese, a couple of Chileans, and Americans who come to, who came together to found it and then to to do a workshop at Boston University this March and to have a presence and a global table on multilateralism at the Global Solutions Summit in Berlin, which just completed yesterday. So the the purpose of, of assembling a, an international group like this was basically to pluralize the toxic relation, bilateral relationship between the U.S. and China and embed it in a larger dynamic that involved Canada, involved Europe, involves the voices of other thought leaders in, in other countries, not even in the G20. So that that was the purpose was to cushion the this uh, hard edge of the us china relationship which was emerging even in 2019 april of 2019 when we launched it um the question of why we initiated it is a different a little slightly different story i mean it came as you both recall when we had the social cohesion workshop for the v20 and at brookings which we have done for three years a seminar on a topic and um, the, uh, at the end of it, as you remember, we had a, a, a Chinese, uh, very uh, strong Chinese uh, expert there and a couple of foreign policy experts. And at the end of it, we had a conversation in which it became pretty clear that the American foreign policy experts were of a mind that a, a conflict was looming with China and that the U.S. should take a much harder stand. And, that, and my reaction to that, that very night, and that conversation went on well past the, the closing time. And um, it was a very interesting one, and I was very grateful that we did have as good a Chinese presence as we did in that room in that moment. Yeah. And... Um, basically it seemed to me at the time, at the, at the time I had the naive view, which looks very naive now, but that this, this kind of a conflict was unnecessary, that the elites in both countries would avoid it, that there was enough communication, understanding, respect, and trust among leading, uh, business people, leading people in the think tank and research communities, leading politicians and so on to, um, to attenuate this. Um, but uh, the other thing that I have to, have to say that I, so I saw a need to try to figure out a way around this kind of potential conflict and what we're now calling trying to avoid a bipolar competitive era, which we're clearly in. I mean, this was recalled before Trump, before any of us, anybody, any, anybody thought that Trump would become president of the United States. So the problem now, obviously, is Trump specifically Trump. It's not even the U.S. government. It's only the U.S. government problem because he happens to be president of the United States. But it, but he ha is a very odd president, as the Bolton stuff proves and as others um, have said. So he, he acts on his own. He doesn't really act as a government. Um, so so that has complicated the story a whole lot. The, the other thing that motivated it was that I was already deeply involved, as you were, you both were, in the in the Global Solutions Summit which uh, by that time was in its had been already through its or going through its second year. We're now in the fourth, just finished the fourth Global Solutions Summit. So I saw an opportunity there to carry the China West dialogue and this network into that forum and enlarge it and embed it in Berlin with one of the few very weighty governments in the, in the global system now. 
and to amplify the messages. So, so there was a combination of, of, of thinking about the Global Solutions Summit as an adjunct to, not necessarily central to, but certainly a, a good platform to amplify the messages coming out of the, glo- uh, out of the China-West dialogue. Because, first of all, it was in Europe and engaging Europeans was an essential strategy that was involved in pluralizing the relationship between the U.S. and China. And second of all, because um, there were other stakeholders there, Chen Dongqiao, who's the key Chinese colleague that has been part of this from the beginning with us, had been co-chair of the T20 for for China in 2016, and Dennis Snower, of course, had been co-chair of the T20s uh, in in Germany the following year in 2017. So we're in 2018, and it looked looked like this is a great combination to carry forward. So Dennis and and Chen Dongxiao are both, as you know, founding members, as are the three of us. So so it, and I still have this conviction that this um, dive into the ditch that has been caused by Trump can be reversed and that there are ideas that we'll get to later in this conversation about how you can, how you can set a different course. Okay. Eve, what, what do you have to add in terms of its origin and reasoning? Uh, I have just three points to add. Uh, okay. One minor point, which is the network's actually a little bigger. It includes uh Canadians, but also Japanese, uh, potentially Koreans. Uh, so, mm-hmm. and, and, and it's in general open. We, we want to involve as many yeah. uh, viewpoints as possible. True. Uh, the bulk is as described by Colin. Uh, second point, there was a precursor, which was this Vision 20 summit that we did in Hangzhou around, uh, you know, just before the, the G20 uh, in uh, March, April 2016. Uh, mm-hmm. And there were multiple goals, but one, one goal was, of course, to nudge the, uh, the elites around the G20 to think not just short-term and not just technical, but think long-term, think, uh, you know, the global issues, systemic risk and the like, and, and to uh, then bring it down to the short-term, but start from the long-term needs, uh, have more dialogue among types of uh, different players, so bring policy people with scholars and the like. Uh, and, and other groups, but also to embed a deeper dialogue between uh, emerging countries, especially China, but not just China. We brought Indonesia, India, uh, Brazil to the table, uh, and also uh, and the West, uh, the dominant players in the system. So that was already one goal. But what's interesting is in that early precursor, the focus was on global public goods and systemic risks. So we face all those problems. We just had the financial crisis. We have climate problem. We have inequality. Uh, we really we can't solve it without a dialogue that is between emerging countries and established countries, and they don't have the networks. They don't have the habits. Uh, and so that's why it's not happening. Uh, so that, w- that was the initial insight. Then when we moved to CWD, which is coming out of the Vision 20, uh, there's this new dimension, which is how to avoid disaster, right? Uh, because at that point, the U.S. and China are heading into what I see as an ever-accelerating tit-for-tat strategic interaction cycle uh, where there is tons of misperception. Uh, they, they have really no clue what the other side is thinking uh and and they have gross misrepresentations on each other uh and i also observe lots of groupthink behavior in washington and in beijing so we all know that china is full of groupthink but you now see groupthink behavior happening in washington 
Uh, and if uh, you have group thing in general, you're in high danger uh, because you don't have room for external ideas. You may miss something enormous, right? Uh, when the U.S. had group thing in the 60s, we had the Vietnam War. And nobody was able to tell the smartest and brightest around the table that the Vietnamese, the North Vietnamese, did not see this as a Cold War thing. They saw it as a decolonization war. Uh, and, and if you just have that one insight, everything is different. Mm -hmm. uh, they were fighting the Americans like they fought the French before. Um, and so we see stuff like this happening now. And, and the idea behind CWD uh, is to enlarge the circle, to bring uh, different voices, to step out of a, you know, this strategic tit-for-tat interaction full of misperceptions and hopefully share the viewpoints for the other side and then start to think, how do we deal with it? Uh, is there uh, is there an institutional way, you know, is there an institutional pathway that can lead us to a better place? Uh, beyond uh, common systemic risk and public good, can we also defuse some of the unnecessary tensions? And how do we avoid disaster? Right? Okay. Uh, is okay. uh, inadvertent conflict, uh, which could escalate. Now, the CWD, for both of you, uh, as you know, uh, we, we've tried to develop, you know, uh, workshops. And unfortunately, the pandemic uh, intervened quite dramatically in all of that. But we did hold a uh, virtual uh, workshop, uh, thanks in part to Kevin Gallagher at uh, Boston University, and this was in in March. And then, as Colin mentioned, we also uh, worked at the Global Solutions Summit, which I'll uh, get back to. Now, many of the participants, uh, academics, uh, experts, etc., former officials who we engaged uh, at uh, BU, were prepared to sign on to a short statement, which was called International Expert Group Press's Urgency of U.S.-China Leadership in Global Coordination of the People-Centered Policies. And in that statement, there was this uh, paragraph that included uh, this, scholars and experts who have examined the dynamics between China and the United States, and obviously both were referencing that, concluded that embracing the complexity and multifaceted nature of this relationship is the first step towards managing competition and uh, collaboration and responsibility in the, in, the, in the global order, particularly between uh, China and the United States. So, uh, Colin, what I want to do is ask you, uh, what, was the, what do you mean in, or what was meant in that statement about this notion of embracing complexity and multifaceted nature of the relationship? Yeah, good question. It was pretty central. I mean, as you know, Ian Johnston at Harvard was one of the people that participated, even though um, he wasn't part of signing this, the um, document, the statement itself. Yeah. But the yeah. fact is, he certainly agreed to have it be quoted as as a central a central stage setting concept in trying to articulate an alternative framework for China West relations, which is what the purpose of the CWD is about. Uh, this, the starting concept is the, the notion that he contributed with, Ian Johnson contributed, which was that there isn't a single global order. There are eight uh, global orders, and that he identified those 
um, eight of them in his paper as a nice matrix that shows, and it demonstrated that the behavior of China in, in the U.S. was different in each of the eight orders, which just opens up a whole uh, new uh, plane of interaction by, by suggesting that if you disaggregate the, into, into multiple orders and you take each issue and you put it in a separate um, forum or platform and negotiate from there and you admit that the issues are not tweetable but are not simplifiable and not simplistic, but quite the contrary. If you know, as most people in the knowledge community know, is that every one of these issues, whether it be security issues or climate change or social inclusion or whatever trade, whatever it is, there it's infinitely complex. Technology being certainly that true of that, true of all of them, obviously. And so the, the idea is that you you professionalize the conversation between China and the U.S. and the and Europe and the other major players, that you have global negotiations in which the complexity is what you end up dealing with in a pragmatic, professional, knowledge-driven way. And of course, there are political interests involved in all of them, but the, the point is that it's not ideological, it's not simplified, it's not a contest of dogmas, it's not a, a contest of stereotypes of between a, the way a state-run economy looks at something and the way that a market, a free market economy looks at something. So, so the whole idea was to, to use that as kind of a central organizing concept from which came about half a dozen other major pillars of, of the alternative framework, which each of which happens to be consistent with, um, with that starting point and each of which actually has been articulated by someone either from, from a different country, whether China, the US, Europe, Canada, or wherever. So we, we managed to amalgamate a set of concepts which were generated from people from different country perspectives and put them together in a way in which they synergize because they're all quite consistent with each other. Eve, do you have anything to add on that uh, point about the uh, complexity? Uh, just briefly, yeah, uh, it, it is true that each domain has its own logic, its own set of actors. Right. Uh, and in fact, one of the biggest misunderstandings is to see one action coming from one uh, domain of Chinese behavior, say military in the South China Sea, and then call it the Chinese are doing or the Chinese are thinking, when in fact, you know, their colleagues doing trade or doing uh, other parts of foreign affairs may actually scratch their head and say, oh, I wish they didn't do this. But so th there's a lot of competition within the Chinese system uh, and uh, and in multiple actors as tug of war and understanding, at least I think it's essential to understand what it, each move is and where it comes from and what the motivation was and who the coalition was. Because right. at least we know what it is and then we know what to do with it. But to not, uh, you know, not super simplify everything. Otherwise, we just can't act with it, right? So uh, for our listeners, just so they, uh, if they want to look up the uh, uh, Alistair Ian Johnston piece, it's in International Security in uh, Volume 44. Uh, and you can find the article there. It's called World of Orders and uh, uh, worth uh, spending a little time on for sure. Uh, <coughs> now, Colin, um, CWD also prepared a 
video panel and a keynote message at the Global Solutions Summit. Originally, of course, the, the Global Solutions Summit, as you pointed out, was to be actually for the fourth time in Berlin. Uh, but again, because of the virus, of course, uh, it couldn't be an in-person meeting and it, it shifted to a virtual format. Uh, uh, the CWD organized uh, a, a table called uh, a so-called global table at the summit and titled How to Avoid Another Bipolar Competitive Era. Uh, Colin, you prepared the keynote, and uh, so I wanted to ask you what you thought your main message was uh, from the keynote that you, uh, that you gave, which was about, I guess, around 10 minutes in length. Yeah, sure. The, the main message was a message to the to the other participants at the in the Global Solutions Summit. Summit, yep. Which is the, the it builds off the notion that the the presence of China uh, related issues and the and the presence of Chinese continental Chinese in the Global Solutions Summit is very far from being commensurate with the importance of China in those issues or in the world. And so what it has come to remind me of is, so, so my message to my, our colleagues in the Global Solutions Summit, who are multi-stakeholders, by the way, I mean, this is across now 100 countries, 1,600 people from over 100 countries, um, from business, from the civil society, from journalism, from universities, research, think tanks, science communities, doctors now for sure, this time quite evident because of the COVID-19, obviously. So it's a very broad and interesting uh, set of thought leaders. Is The message was to them, is to, and asking them to, to say, to, to involve Chinese in their own deliberations over the coming year between the summit that just concluded yesterday and the, and the summit that will take place next year, the fifth Global Solutions Summit will take place May 27th, 28th, and 2021 in Berlin, hopefully. Mm -hmm. And to, to involve Chinese in their own activities, and then for all of us together as we convene panels and plenaries and different aspects of Global Solutions Summit 2021 next May, is that we involve Chinese directly in a lot of those panels and in the organizing of them and the generating of the perspectives and the themes and the questions and the issues that we want to, in other words, to, to, to incorporate Chinese colleagues into this platform, this knowledge-based platform as peers and as, as equals, as players and in a partnership in which we're all trying to come up with the, and this is an ideal place to do this because it is a knowledge-based forum. The, the level of trust and respect, I think, among experts is, is high. You don't have the direct political, uh, official and unofficial, um, uh, tensions at play and so on. So, so it's a little bit. If you'll if you'll take this in the right spirit, is if you think back decades ago and even not so long ago, is that is that the recruitment of women into knowledge based conversations has been a deliberate a deliberate uh, effort, and it's actually had results. I mean, it has. It's it's really quite notable. So the, the and the. the the thing is that what I'm really trying to say is that this is not going to happen in the natural course of things that Chinese are included in something as big and important as the Global Solutions Summit. And that if, unless we take some leadership, unless we each 
make an effort to identify and engage with individuals from China in our respective fields and incorporate them into our our deliberations, we will not be able to set an example to the official channels in the G20 mm-hmm. that a partnership and a, a, a based on respect and and mutual understanding and reciprocity and is is possible. We we will have failed to convey it by the fact that we've excluded them. I mean, there is a question of social inclusion of this the one of the most important countries in the world on every issue that one can think of and so it's okay. a big ask it's it's not easily easy to in- implement it but that was the message that i tried to give in the keynote okay and eve you uh, were involved with the video panel in fact you moderated it the panel itself included uh susan thornton who is a former state department uh, official uh, concerned with uh, with the far east uh carrie brown a professor of Chinese studies and director of the Lao China Institute at King's College University of London, and uh, Chen Dongxiao, the president of the Shanghai Institutes uh, for International um, Studies. Uh, As Chen Dongxiao suggested, single narratives have been long dominant in international relations, For example, politicians and international relations theorists have either predicted that China and America, with their vast differences in historical, cultural, and development models, uh, and clearly we know that the economic models are are very different, will fall into a so-called Thucydides trap or describe their relationship as, as an ideological rivalry between authoritarian societies and democratic societies uh you know what's the consequence you think of of uh, such a perspective do you agree with it and if you do what is the consequence of of that kind of uh perspective uh yeah so the the debate uh, is very interesting because uh you know we are at a very difficult time we expect lots of conflictual views we know that they come from think tank communities or government communities that are very uh different right now and that are in collision course and yet in that discussion there was essentially consensus around three ideas one uh the necessity of multiple narratives and multiple perspectives uh second the room for effective multilateralism to uh, to deal with uh common problems that there are common problems, common interests, and the like. And third, actually, all sides were calling for more uh, involvement by middle powers, more leadership by the non-US, non-China side. But that that was interesting. Well, the the consequence of taking an approach like this on multiple narratives and and effective multilateralism mm-hmm. was essentially, uh, you know, essentially to try to pull away from uh, the head-to-head. Uh, you know, zero-sum game, battle of, of values and security. Because that, essentially that's what's emerging out of the U.S. increasingly is a vision that uh, first is incompatibility on the security side and second that the value system, uh, you know, is getting more like an ideological battle, which reminds us of the Cold War. Mm-hmm. Uh, the more the U.S. system gets convinced of that, the less room there will be for uh, multilateralism or acceptance. The Chinese, at least the scholarly response we get is, first of all, don't overemphasize it. Essentially, they're hinting that the Xi Jinping hardening 
is not a fundamental uh, shift toward uh, you know completely hard authoritarianism. It's still pro-reform. It's still trying to get good governance. They and there will be room for tilting back later. Uh, you know, say, there's that hint behind right what they what they're saying, uh, and therefore there is still room for compatibility to work together on a whole bunch of things. Also, I guess the hint that we hear and we didn't hear in this panel, but often hear elsewhere, uh, essentially give us time. You know, we got the system we got. We got a lot of problems right now in equality. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of issues. We can change system and and deal with those issues right now. We're going to have to move to a better place first in terms of economic model, in terms of uh, international space, and then hopefully we'll get to institutional reforms, right? But at our pace, the way we do it. Now, if you ask us to change democratize now, then it's going to blow up, right? Uh, And so... Essentially, on the Chinese side, they're calling for giving them time for accepting uh, that they have a different system that's a fruit of history, but there is room for lots of cooperation on the global system side. On the American side, they're trying to say, uh, I guess, uh, we, we should learn to uh, you know, see different perspectives and all this, but also, I guess, we hope that the Chinese will not boast that they have a fundamental alternative that they're more, uh, you know, grappling with issues <laughs> that's more acceptable, right? But so there's a lot of coded, uh, you know, realities behind. What the discussion did not address is when you have actual problems, when you have a clash of economic interests, a clash of security interests, uh, how, how do you actually find solution? We haven't gone to those weeds yet. So as a final question here on, on CWD, uh, really, Colin, do you think any progress has been made? I mean, it, you know, given where Washington is, do you think that there is any likelihood that we're going to uh, see uh, and adopt a possible, you know, accept multiple narratives, accept uh, complexity, um, or is this just beyond uh, Washington's capabilities at this point? Oh, I think it's definitely beyond Washington's capability. And as long as uh, the current um, president is in the White House, and and yet you, we have a very short time to go before the election. And I and I think you know it's not fashionable to talk about these things, but the truth of it is that there is a very good chance now that that Trump will not be reelected to a second term. And it's only under those circumstances in which the, an alternative narrative can take place within the United States. Now, we've already had some interactions with Europeans, not only within this CWD ourselves, but each of us have had conversations with European colleagues and friends um, in which you guys are deeply involved yourselves, is that gives evidence to the fact that there is an appetite for this kind of articulation of an alternative pathway, an alternative framework which consists of pillars of ideas which are actually constitutive of a narrative. I mean, everybody in the, in the, in the China West dialogue, Boston university workshop group of which there were 20 people from a variety of places Mm -hmm. is countries and disciplines, by the way, everybody there agreed that the problem was conflicting narratives that were spiraling downward and outward and away from each other between the China, between China and the U S. And so it, it is words that matter. It isn't, you know, it isn't, 
it isn't actually the specifics of you know moves by the navies in the in the South China Sea which are driving it. It's words, mm-hmm. and it's it's and that's where Trump's you know the provocateur in all of this. I think, and and certainly Xi Jinping hasn't helped because his own internal hardening, which is driven by internal things, you know, just feeds feeds off and seems to confirm Trump's narrative. So in part, so. I, th- I think the point is that, that the election of Biden is absolutely critical for a shift to take place, not only in, ter- in, the, in Washington, but then that triggers that, that completely, you know, I think restarts the conversation in Europe about, okay, what can we do now? The conversation about what can they could do in a second Nixon term, second Nixon term, a second Trump term. I wasn't fond too, too fond of Richard Nixon either. Is is that is 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 a is a dead conversation. I mean, that, that's a completely different story. And then I think the chances of an alternative pathways like this might help the Europeans within their own debate about how they want to organize themselves and their own approach towards mm-hmm. China. There has been enough interest in in by the Europeans in, in it to think that that there might be some possibilities that they themselves can pull together a framework like this that would help them be autonomous in, in its, in their approach to uh, China. But, um, but I think it's a, the reelection of Trump is a devastating blow to multilateralism, a devastating blow to global governance, a devastating blow as it already is to the G7 and the G20. I mean, look at, the way that Trump is now toying with the G7, so it's not the G7 anymore. He's put it back to the G8, and then he invites India, who's, who's, you know, who's no, and wants to discuss China within the G7, which of course the Europeans don't want to do. The, the Ch- Japanese don't want to do. The Indians don't want to do. Who they've all he's also invited. So it's a complete, completely intuitional, impulsive, bogus set of dynamics that he's unleashed in the G7, so that it's not workable. Okay. It's sold out. And so we just have to wait till November. And then I think if Biden's elected, um, there's still some persuasion to do in his channels, as you both know, and anybody else who's following this knows as well. But, but at least there's a huge shift back to multilateralism, back to NATO, back to the Paris Agreement, back to the Iran nuclear deal, and off again on a multilateral approach, which, which um, then needs to be Transit. There needs to be shifts within that old approach, former approach, in our approach to China, and that's that's where the discussions with uh, the Biden people will be of great consequence. Anything to add there, Eve? Before we finish up, uh, yeah, very briefly. Uh, it's true that in a historical perspective, Trump is uh, President Trump has been very. Uh, as a historical figure in that sense, because he's the first president of the post-war period to go against uh, the fundamental consensus that the U.S. put together with what we call now the liberal international order, but the post-war mm-hmm. order. Both the security side, it was close to, we know from the Bolton book, to pull out from NATO. Uh, so both on the security side and on all the institutional side, especially WTO and others, right? Uh, and we can go even further because uh, basically he's also unraveling Wilsonism. Uh, and so he's, he's almost a 19th century type of uh, president in terms of his beliefs. So that's in itself a historical 
disruption of m m massive uh, capacities. Uh, but he, he's also not organized, right, and systematic. So he has, uh, you know, there's a lot of personal impulses and all this and all this. Uh, and he has open space to certain, uh, you know, certain approaches, some of which very hawkish, very security oriented, but not, and then he pulls back. So there's a lot of incoherence as well, right? Mm -hmm. uh, what's interesting, you know, why many people around the world uh, believe in multilateralism, uh, you know, G7, G20, what uh, Colin mentioned, G, G, uh, you know, UN, uh, WTO, etc. is not because they're good in themselves, right? Is they were, they emerged as tools uh, to, to uh, prevent what happened before, which was a lot worse, which was cycles of war and they, you know, use of, uh, of uh, ultimatums on trade and tariffs as foreign policy and bullying of small countries and invasions and this and that. Yeah, it's a pretty nasty world, right? The, you know? And so the effort of institutionalization and, and rule of law and you know, norms is to try to move when the stakes get higher and higher, technology is more and more advanced, weapons more and more advanced. We mm -hmm. can't afford a mistake, right? Because it will be gone as humanity. So it was to try to to match up with all this technical uh, capabilities that humans have uh, in terms of institutional capacity to cooperate. Mm -hmm. uh, and without that cooperation, the humanity will, will have a green future. So that's what's at stake, right? That's this very fundamental uh, approach to... And, and do you think and do you believe that Beijing sees it that way? Uh, there's a lot of people in Beijing who do, but again, Beijing is divided. Uh, so... You get more discussion of this in the last five years in Beijing than in Washington. Uh, and when teaching a class uh, on global governance, on those things, right, in all the universities, there's a lot of interest, you know, a lot, a lot, a lot of interest. Uh, and Eric Leiner wrote, uh, you know, very interesting work showing that the World Bank was actually a Chinese idea. Chinese meaning Sun Yat-sen slash yeah. Guomindang, right? Sun Yat-sen wrote a book in 1920 calling for World Bank, which he called the International Development Bank. Yeah. Uh, so there, there is a lot of belief in this, right? On the economic slash environmental side. Of course, the Chinese side doesn't buy in, uh, you know, uh, pushing for global democratic norms or, or, or conversion. And when you say the Chinese side, you mean the party side? Well, Not that's pretty unified. Actually, there's very, very few Chinese uh, on this one, who are ready to accept uh, global political norms and institutions you know, around democracy. Okay. Uh, because the majority of the population today you know, has come around the belief that uh, democracy is what you see in the U.S. now. It's not working, therefore uh, it's not a good model. And that's what you see around WeChat every day. Right? But on the global economic side, you do have come to push right? by the security type, the PLA type. So they have this long communist re rebellion, you know, tradition. They, they came uh, through civil war and through hardships and they never fully trust those things. So there is that internal tug of war between the harder side and then the internationalist side. And the events that we see unfolding will let one side win over the other, right? So the risk is this interaction. We have a bit of an interaction from hell here between, uh, between the Trump actions and the hardening hawkish side on the Xi Jinping, yeah, who, and they're feeding on each other. Okay. And so the internationalist side has been weakened in China in the last four years. Okay. Well, gentlemen, I really want to thank you for this inquiry into the CWD and for our listeners. Don't go away. We're, there is a second part uh, to this uh, 
interview uh, with both uh, Colin Bradford and Eve Tiberchen, and we're going to look a little bit more pointedly at U.S.-China rivalry, U.S.-China relations, and what can be done about it. So um, please, uh, part two will be coming along fairly soon, but I want to thank you both uh, for your insights uh, here in part one uh, of episode 31. Thank you very much. Thank you.